pleasure to be back again with you. If you would, would you please take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, the Word of God will benefit us this morning and train us in righteousness as we consider what it means and what it does not mean to be a true follower of Christ. And so please, let's look at our text in John chapter 12. Verses 20 through 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That phrase, follow me, it shows up 23 times in the, go- in the Gospels alone and 7 times in just the Gospel of John. Following Jesus with a continual, persistent obedience that manifests itself in what we call believing is a major theme in John's gospel. Beloved, there is no believing without following him. There is no such thing as an unbelieving follower of Christ. This text does not discriminate whether poor, rich, low social status, High social status, scholar, theologian, preacher, seminarian, Baptist, Presbyterian, Calvinist, Arminian, pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill, superlapsarian, infralapsarian, sublapsarian. It does not matter. No matter the category one subscribes to with their lips, anyone can be at risk of being an unbelieving follower of Christ. And that's dangerous. Now for the sake of clarity, let me define What an unbelieving follower is, it is a person who knows and may even confess the truth, but is unwilling to live as though it is true. Friends, you can know everything there is to know about Jesus. You can give some outward, heartfelt assent that Jesus is the word that became flesh, the savior of the world, the way, the truth and the life. And still possess nothing more but the faith of demons. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons believe and shudder. James 2.19 If the raw data, the truth that scripture contains, does not stream through your heart to impact your hands, then that faith is demonic. Friend, Jesus is not pleased with that kind of follower. If God makes the heart glow in affectionate love for Christ, he's also going to make the face beam. There was a man in the 20th century that most of you are probably familiar with to some degree named A.W. Pink. And but what many people are not familiar with is how he came to know Christ. He grew up in a Christian home with parents who taught him the truth. But when Pink became a teenager, he had abandoned his parents' teaching and decided to go his own way, a way which seemed right to him, but it did not lead to eternal life. He knew the truth, but he did not act upon it. It was a way that seemed good to him and filled and checked all the boxes of fleshly satisfaction, but ultimately was nothing more but the path of destruction. He had actually joined a satanic cult, that prided itself on spiritual activity. 
It was called theosophy, and it denied God as a person and somehow believed that it could unify all the religions in the world in some sort of universal brotherhood. Pink would later claim that genuine satanic activity took place as he claims that chairs and tables would levitate, cult members would always be consulting the spirits, and they acted as mediums to communicate with the dead. For a long time, Pink was wrapped up in this kind of cult. You could imagine the grief and the pain that his parents felt on a daily basis as their son would head off to these meetings. So they did what any good Christian parents do. They devoted themselves to peppering their son's ear with as much scripture as they could and drenching their efforts night and day in prayer. Every time he would come home from his weekly meeting, his dad would proclaim a scripture to him. And every week, Pink would race up to the stairs as quickly as possible to escape his dad's plea for him to repent and trust Christ. Well, one afternoon... After the meeting, Pink came home and his dad said, There is a way which seems right to man, but his end is the way of death. He stormed up the stairs and locked himself in the room. But Pink says that his soul became in anguish at the stark contrast between righteousness and unrighteousness. It afflicted his heart. He always knew what was true, he says, but had not truly believed to the point that his actions met what he says he knew was true. He always knew, and, and, and remember these things, this cult is not teaching that Christianity was necessarily wrong. It was just saying that everything else is right. He had no issue with confessing what the Bible says so long as he's free to confess whatever else he wants to believe. Add Jesus to the life rather than making him life and sinner. After all, Satan loves to latch on to the truth and twist it, right? He would not come out of his room until days later as he grappled with that verse. But finally, the word of God brought A.W. Pink to his knees in repentance. And he was soundly saved. Putting all of his trust upon Jesus Christ, the only way which seemed right from that point forward. He acted as the old hymn says, My chains fell off, I was finally free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Belief in Christ is only valid if you follow him. Beloved, may it never be said of the members of PBC that they are people who honor God with their lips, but, hear, but their hearts are far from him. It is critically important for you to understand what it means to follow Christ. And so, friends, what we have in our passage in John 12 is a clear distinction between a true follower and a false follower. We see the characteristics of an unbelieving follower that should encourage you what not to be and a believing follower of Christ that should encourage you what to be. And in fact, that is the outline that I have for you this morning. In verses 20 through 22, we find the characteristics of an unbelieving follower. And in verses 23 through 26, we find the characteristics of a believing follower. And what I hope for you to see is that in this passage, there are two types of followers that should encourage you to come to the end of yourselves as true, committed followers of Christ. And so let's begin by looking at our text in verses 20 through 22, what not to be an unbelieving follower. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Who are these Greeks? What feast are they attending? Why are they worshiping? How are they worshiping? And why is it that I keep saying they're unbelieving? These are all important questions that we need to resolve in order to understand the qualities of an unbelieving follower. These Greeks were most likely Jewish proselytes who traveled far in order to attend the Passover. You remember at the beginning of chapter 12, John tells us that they are six days out from Passover. And Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead and that word that he had done that was spreading rapidly throughout. Everybody in the festival knew it. And some of those Jews, according to verse 11, were believing in him. The resurrection of Lazarus was undeniable. 
and became such an annoyance to the religious leaders that they wanted to put Lazarus back in the grave. But as always is the case whenever you see genuine believers going after Christ, here comes the false ones to bring the confusion. This chapter begins with believers with a believer anointing the feet of Jesus with costly perfume and wiping it with her own hair. And on the very next day, the triumphal entry, we already find once again the fickle crowds laying down their palm trees whom days later will be yelling for him to be crucified. Now look what verses 17 and 18 say that set up the context for who these Greeks are. So the crowd who was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness about him. For this reason, the big miracle that was spreading. Also the crowd went and met him because they heard that he had done this sign. There it is. And of that crowd yelling Hosanna and seeking Jesus because he did a sign, there were some Greeks. There's our Greeks in verse 20. And so the first characteristic that we learn about unbelieving followers is that unbelieving followers are sign fanatics. The religious fanatics of the Greek world traveled all the way to Israel and walked up to the city set on the hill to worship and hear that a man rose another man from the dead and they became obsessed with the supernatural. And here's how we can know for certain that they were unbelievers. Because the same ones that are requesting a meeting in verse 20 among the same crowds are the ones that hear God's voice in verse 30. They question Jesus' assertion that the Son of Man has to die in verse 34. And ultimately are pronounced in verse 37 as those who were not believing in him. There it is. Unbelieving followers are sign fanatics. Now, knowing that they are unbelievers, what kind of worship do you think they were offering to God at this feast? The word worship, it's a compound word comprised of two words, toward and to kiss. And the image is that a follower would come down to this deity and cast himself on the ground to either kiss the earth or the image of a god or the feet of a superior or even like a statue. It's an action that should be directed to God alone. In John 9.38, the healed blind man says, Lord, I believe. And it says, and he worshipped him. Worship is the outward reflex of faith, of belief, of following him. This is to recognize Jesus as Lord and to render homage for who he is. But the kind of worship that the Greek proselytes of Judaism are offering Jesus is a Judas type of worship. As Judas betrayed the Lord with a holy kiss, their external kiss to God means nothing without being a true follower of Christ, friends. And notice they came to worship but are quickly detoured by the signs. To worship, it indicates the purpose for why they're showing up at this feast, which teaches us another characteristic of unbelieving followers. They can retain some form of outward godliness to the point that they look the part. They genuinely look like they are there to worship. And so the second quality of an unbelieving follower is that he offers external worship. Unbelieving followers are sign fanatics. Unbelieving uh, followers offer external worship. In 2 Timothy 3.5, it testifies of the existence of these men holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. A man can look godly without actually being godly. The most dangerous people in the world are not the political powers that be. The most dangerous people in the world are the religious who look like worshipers who with their mouth confess Jesus as Lord, but refuse to believe in him in their hearts. Friends, unbelieving followers are those who can create an artificial light of godliness for others to look at. 
They're not concerned that God's looking at them, though. And ultimately, the test of time reveals their fruit, that they are self-willed. They're in it for self-benefit because they are motivated by a love for self. Which is why we see five verses later, he who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And so we see that unbelieving followers are signed fanatics. And unbelieving followers offer external worship, a form of godliness. Now there's one last characteristic that I want you to see before we move on to the main portion of this passage, which deals with a true follower. And that is that unbelieving followers want the Jesus experience. Verse 21 says, They came to Philip from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They came to Philip because perhaps, you know, the Greek name Philip, they thought maybe their chances of scoring a meeting with Jesus would increase by talking to someone with a Greek name like theirs. How political of them, right? But notice the text. They began to ask him. The picture is the ongoing, continual demand that they are placing upon Philip. It's not like they're coming to him in humility, but everyone is wanting to see Jesus because of these signs. But here comes these Greeks, politicking their way in. Let us see him, let us see him, let us see him. But a true believer is like Zacchaeus, sought out by the Lord. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house, which led to repentance and salvation. But these Greeks are politicking their way to the name to Jesus in the name of do a trick for us, Jesus. Let us see a sign. Let us experience you. Give us a taste of the heavenly gift. Sound familiar with Hebrews, right? The word ask, it has the sense of of request and something interesting about that word in John's gospel is that it's often used in the context of doubting contentious questions like the royal official who wanted his son healed in John 4:47 he says he went to Jesus and was asking him to come down and heal his son for he was about to die and how does Jesus respond to him unless you people see signs and wonders you will never believe Or like the doubting religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 12, who asked the man whom Jesus healed on the Sabbath, who is the man who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? Tell us, who is he? Or the doubting Pharisees asking the blind man over and over again how he received his sight, even though he had already told them plenty of times in John 9, 15. Come on, man, what really happened? Here's the point. They're unbelieving followers they're requesting a hearing because it very well could be that they are doubters something we know is true because of verse 37 the clear statement they were unbelieving they wanted to see jesus and to experience him and that word see can mean experience they perceived the earthly things and were curious about the supernatural things that jesus had done Had they been asking Jesus for a meeting with him with godly intentions, then surely they would have been asking Jesus for salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, that is the only appropriate godly reason to come to Jesus. Lord, save me. You and you alone have the words of eternal life. And even if saved, Lord, pluck out my sin that indwells in me as an unwelcomed guest. The godly pursue Christ because they hate their sin and love their God. The ungodly pursue Christ as nothing more but an additional flavor for their life. They want the experience of Jesus with no cost. They want to experience him so long as it doesn't lead to rejecting their worldliness. They want to see Jesus and perhaps they will believe But what would Jesus later go on to say, friends? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe, John 20, 29. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. These are not men of faith. They are unbelieving followers that are signed fanatics, offer external worship, and just want the Jesus experience. And with that said, Jesus' answer to them makes a lot more sense. It's not like you got some humble believers seeking Jesus in the spirit of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, Or, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for someone else? In other words, Lord, we seek the Messiah. Are you him? It's not as though they are being humble and the Lord responds with stern words to die to self to them. The Lord's call to die to self is on the heels of unbelieving followers wishing to add Jesus to their life. Well, Philip and Andrew bring the news of these Greeks to Jesus in verse 22. And with that, we turn our attention to a believing follower. What are the characteristics of a believing follower of Christ? Now, just as there were three characteristics of an unbelieving follower, so too there are three characteristics that our text will highlight of a believing follower. And the first one is in verses 23 and 24. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so the first characteristic I want you to see is that believing followers are the Son of Man's inheritance. They are not signed fanatics. They are the Son of Man's inheritance. They are five days out from the death of Christ, eight days out from the Son of Man possessing a glorified body. The time has come for the Son of Man to do what he came to do. And the point Jesus is making in verse 24 is that unless he should die, no one will be saved. And for the sake of clarity, the point of believing followers are an inheritance is derived from the phrase, it bears much fruit. The fruit is the reward of the Son of Man's accomplished work. But before we get there, I want to set it up for you the way that Jesus does. So let's take a closer look at this. It says, the Son of Man, this phrase in Daniel 7, is from Daniel 7.13, which says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion. Glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, the Son of Man is said to come and establish a kingdom on earth. He then approaches God who is called in this passage the Ancient of Days. And is given by God dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All the peoples, the nations, and men of every tongue, of, they flock to this Son of Man to serve Him during this future reign. And it is a dominion that is an everlasting dominion that will not be taken away. This kingdom cannot be destroyed. Well, in the context of John twelve twenty three, Jesus is saying that the hour has come. For the Son of Man to approach the Ancient of Days and receive the dominion and glory by which the nations must flock to Him in service. Now it's key to know that though Christ is presently glorified and is the true King, the kingdom is not yet set up. You see, friends, God's patience is great. The lost are given a time to kiss the Son's feet. The hour that Jesus is speaking of is an already but not yet type of glorification. It's like King David being anointed to reign over Israel while Saul was actually the one sitting on the throne. David truly was the king, anointed by God to be so. But the reign from the throne did not take place until a later time. So too, friend, Jesus is anointed as king. But his reign from the throne still awaits. But nonetheless, he is glorified. 
He is glorified by virtue of the Father, exalting him from the dead and bestowing upon him the name that is above all names. Jesus responds to the false followers the way he does by saying, it's time for the Son of Man to come to do what he came to do. Save sinners. And if you're not willing to follow me to the point of death, then there is no glory for you, friend. The hour has come so that the only acceptable worship that God accepts is a service that follows Christ to the point of death. Mere external worship will not cut it, friends. You want to be a true follower? You must worship the Son of Man because the time has come for Him to be glorified and you will either be saved or crushed under the weight of His glory. Glory expresses God's honor and power. This is the luminous manifestation of His person, the glorious revelation of Himself. And we may recognize in some sense God's glory in creation, but it expresses itself above all in redemptive history, the great acts of God in salvation. You see, in some sense, man was a partaker of divine glory in the Garden of Eden. What is man that you are mindful of him that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty but due to the fall man's glory is a fallen glory and the work of redemption is the restoration of that glory That blessed glory that only comes through Christ, the Son of Man. The glory of Christ is that which draws not only the nation of Israel to worship Him, but the nations. Which is exactly what Jesus will say later in verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now Christ is intrinsically glorious as very God. And that intrinsic glory that it cannot be given to him is clearly seen in verse 41, where Isaiah testifies that he beheld the glory of Christ. That is, the holy, holy, holy throne room scene of Isaiah 6 that he's talking about where he sees the pre-existing glory of the Son of God. But the glory that is given to him is because he is the Messiah, our representative A better Adam who restores the glory and honor to man by saving them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified for the benefit of wretches like you and I. And so even though this is an already but not yet situation with the glorified Son of Man, friends, through Christ the sinner may have glory restored. Or as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.4, For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And now Jesus in verse 24 gives an illustration of how he is glorified, thus assuring you of your glory if you follow him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is an illustration of his death and the results that spring up from it. And it's a pretty simple illustration at that. A grain of wheat needs to fall into the earth and die so that it could bear fruit. In order for the fruit to arise, the wheat has to come to the end of itself. And notice the word unless. If the wheat does not die, then it remains alone. If Jesus does not die, friends, then there is no one with him in heaven. The hour has come for my glory and I have to die to see the fruit of it. But if I do die, I will bear much fruit. That's the sense. This is not the fruit that believers produce. It is the fruit of Jesus' accomplished work. In dying and rising on behalf of sinners like you and I. 
the focus of Jesus' words is the basis of following him. By virtue of his death and resurrection, i.e. his glorification, he obtains the bounty of his labor, which is a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds, Titus 2.14. And if anyone in these crowds were acquainted with their Old Testament, the Messiah receiving an, an inheritance should not have been a surprise to them. This is exactly what is portrayed in Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant. You remember in Isaiah 53, verse 10, But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, here it is, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore I will divide for him a portion with the many and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for transgressors. Isaiah says, Jesus, the servant, will see his seed. Will see it and be satisfied. Because he poured out his soul to death. Bearing the sin of many and interceding on their behalf. Or as the Apostle Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. True believing followers are the inheritance of the Son of Man's death. We are not signed fanatics. We are the inheritance of the Son of Man's death, burial, and resurrection. The seed that he will see and be satisfied. Jesus says that the hour has come for me to die and receive the fruit of my inheritance so that I, who am glorified, may bring many sons to glory. What a Savior. And so moving on to the second characteristic of believing followers, they are the son of man's inheritance, and now we see they reject their personal interest. Look with me at verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. A person who holds dearly to a friendship with himself is destroyed. But a person who dies to self for the cause of Christ will live forever. He who loves. This emphasizes an affectionate friendship. In fact, the noun form of this word love is used later in John 15, 13 to refer to friends. But here in our text, friendship is not viewed in a positive light. Jesus is calling for a renunciation of self-love, self-assertion, and self-justification. Self-denial is a prerequisite of salvation that involves the forfeiture of your very life. The point Jesus is making is that if anyone refuses to come to the end of themselves because of their friendship with self, they will lose their life. Friendship with self is enmity with God. And the end result of such a friendship is the very loss of your soul. Oh friend, what does it profit to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? What does it profit to maintain some sense of worldly peace only to lose it for all of eternity? Those who endeavor to secure their efforts will lose it. But those who lose their life, their worldly life for Christ's sake and the gospel, by following him will keep it to the end. That's the sense. Friends, that's what Christ came for. God sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Perish. That's the same word for loss here in our text. 
And this loss is a definitive destruction. It's not merely the sense of extinction from physical existence, but rather it is an eternal plunge into hell with a hopeless destiny. The word lost, loses, it is written in the present tense to emphasize the ongoing state of losing. Think about that. The result of presently loving yourself is the continuing, ongoing, never-ending, present state of losing it. And dear sinner, it is at this point that I must warn you, it is an ever-present In fact, better said, timeless state of loss. No end is mentioned in this loss. There are no succession of moments in this loss. There is no time in this loss. It's one never-ending moment of fire. And that kind of punishment, a timeless punishment, is exactly what you would expect with a timeless God. Eternity. That is the unfathomable aspect of hell that I cannot even process. It is an incomprehensible judgment from an incomprehensible God. But as heavy and as incomprehensible as the terror of hell, think back to verse 24 and consider how infinitely glorious our Savior is to redeem hell-bound sinners and to preserve them for a timeless glory. And those who receive this timeless glory are those who are characterized as those who reject their personal interest. Look at the text again. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Haters of self. Those are believing followers of Christ. The idea of hate is to utterly reject in every respect. The word is used of Paul in Romans 9.13 to express God's sovereign prerogative to utterly reject Esau and set his mountains to be a desolation as an inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness, Malachi 1.2. This kind of hatred involves an unwillingness to further the interest of someone else. You think about when you ignore someone or give them the cold shoulder. You are demonstrating hatred to that person. Now flip it. That level of rejection is, a demonstration, is demonstrated by that word hate. And that is the kind of hatred that you are to have towards yourself. Reprobate your own interest. A believing follower must utterly reject himself to desolation. Assign his place to the jackals of the wilderness. He must no longer strive to further his personal interest. Ignore yourself. The requirement of following him that Jesus gives is that obedience to God must take precedence over all human obligations, especially those which belong to our personal interest. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Luke 9, 23 and 24. And notice the change of tense for the results of those who love their life versus those who hate their life. Those who love it continue in an ongoing state of losing it, present tense. But those who reject themselves now, they have the future certainty that they will have eternal life. The eternal purchased glory that is the Son of Man's inheritance is freely given to those who follow Him. Those who reject their life for the sake of His. Believing followers are the Son of Man's inheritance. Believing followers reject their personal interest. And finally, we come to verse 26 for the final characteristic of a true follower of Christ. A believing follower serves Jesus. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Service is mentioned three times in that verse. 
A person who wishes to serve Christ will follow Christ to the end and ultimately be honored by the Father. The if emphasizes the condition that there is no such thing as a follower who does not serve him. It is far too common to hear of someone that could be a believer without actually being a servant of the Lord. And the basic argument is that there is a such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now granted, some Christians are going to excel in fruitfulness more than others due to maturity. But may it never be said that someone could be a follower of Christ and not serve Christ in a fruitful way. No service is equivalent to not being a true follower. The word serve, it has the basic sense of a lowly service that benefits someone other than yourself. It's Peter's mother-in-law waiting on the disciples after being healed in Mark 131. It's the members of the household of Stephanus devoting themselves to the service of the saints in 1 Corinthians 16.15. It's the king's attendants who serve him in Matthew 22.13. Friends, it's Jesus washing the disciples' feet in John in 13, 15. Every Christian is a servant by virtue of being a minister of the gospel. Friends, if in Christ you are servants of him, ministers of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. And I am of the persuasion that Paul is referencing all Christians here to be ministers of the new covenant. We are ambassadors of Christ. And the paradigm of this kind of selfless service is the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. This is a service that cares for the needs of others. If anyone is to devote themselves to this perpetual service of Christ, it demands that they follow him. Where he is, they will be. Even to the point of death. It demands that they are to serve perpetually as Jesus perpetually serves them. In John's gospel, the call to follow Jesus, it's a primary thing. To follow Jesus means that someone is believing upon the revelation that he is giving. He will go on later to say in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A servant believes the master's words. You see, friends, both the service of the follower and the following itself, they're written in a continual sense. If anyone should continually follow me, if anyone should continually serve me, he must continually follow me. The unbelieving followers are not wishing to serve him. They want the Jesus experience for their own benefit to serve themselves. Believing followers are those who are in a perpetual state of serving Christ. And that service, beloved, it looks like serving one another. That is the strength and the validity of the gospel message that you proclaim. To proclaim the gospel without hands that support, that you believe in that message, is a loud declaration of what you mean when you tell someone else to follow Christ. A helpful picture of this is that you tell somebody to follow and your life testifies that is in Joshua chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land and Joshua had just taken Moses' spot. And look what Israel says to Joshua. All that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. We're going to follow you, Joshua. Just as we listen to Moses in all things, so we will listen to you. Now, if I'm Joshua, I'm thinking, well, that's not good. You treated Moses like trash, complained every day, rebelled against him, sucked up to him, and then repeat. Their words, we will listen to you, are nothing but hot air. They mean nothing because of their actions. And so too, friends, let your life support that you are a believing follower of Christ.
because of your continual service to him. And look at this. The one who does this is honored by the Father. It means the glory that was lost in the fall will be restored to you. You will be glorified. No more sin. This is not like worldly honor. A worldly honor stands in stark contrast with this since the world sees honor by virtue of your standing before other men. Whereas the honor that God gives is stored up in heaven for followers of Christ until the end. Your reward is in heaven, Christian. And some of those future glorious rewards, they're mentioned in the book of Revelation to the seven churches. Let me go through them. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who overcomes will never be hurt by the second death. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name. This one's unthinkable. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. What blessings stored away for the one who follows Jesus, friends. What a future glory that Christ, the Son of Man, has restored unto sinful men like us. But even though this is an end-time glory, that doesn't mean that that glory doesn't bestow up in any sort of way in the here and now. It does. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Christian, when you behold Christ, you are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That is the way the Father gives you a taste of the honor that is to come. And you say, well, how do I behold Christ so that I may behold this type of glory? And here's the answer. Let me give you a couple of them. There's more, but let me give you a few. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. When you read Scripture... You behold Christ. And beholding Christ, you become like Christ. I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would abide. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you, John fifteen twenty six, Prayer. When you pray, you commune with Christ. You behold him. And thereby become more like him. You bear fruit. And your fruit will increase, friends. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Psalm 119.71 When you look at God's providence and the circumstances that He has brought upon you and realize that He calls it all for good to those who love Him, you behold Christ and you become more like Him. Hebrews 10.24 Let us Stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some. You know what happens when you go to church? You see everybody else's faces. And I have the most benefit of all of you right now because I see all of you at the same time. And I see Christ in you. And by beholding Christ in you, you stimulate me to love and good deeds. And I behold Christ and thereby I am transformed from one degree of glory to the next. These are the basics, are they not? What have I said that's, out of, that's too far and too out there? Read your Bible. Pray. Go to church. Learn from your circumstances. The battle of warring against your sin and following Christ to glory is won by the basics. 
And so, friend, follow him. Don't be as unbelieving followers who are signed fanatics. Offer external worship and want the Jesus experience. But be believing followers who are the son of man's inheritance. Reject their personal interest and serve Jesus perpetually. After A.W. Pink's conversion, the first thing that he did when following Jesus was return to the next cult meeting. Might surprise you. Only this time, he went to proclaim to them that they were on a way which seemed right, but they were on the road to hell. The last address from Pink at this cult meeting was a gospel message of the true God of Jesus Christ, his son, the son of man, through whom there is only redemption in. When Pink was asked, what led him to leave the cult? This is what he wrote. Because it failed to satisfy my soul. I was trying to save myself. There was no peace for a burdened conscience. No assurance of sins forgiven. No power of sin broken. No satisfaction of heart. I found I could not save myself. And I came to the only one who could save me. Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. And like any believing follower, friend, the testimony is virtually the same. Christ is all that satisfies. And so repent of your sins. And in faith, follow him that you may be among those who receive this glory that the Son of Man has purchased. May the heartbeat of a love for Jesus drive you to follow him. No other way, no other hope. Let's pray. Oh, heavenly God. Thank you for the Son of Man. Thank you for Jesus. And Father, we do pray that we would behold your glory, that we would behold Christ, so that we may have a taste of this glory in the here and now, knowing that there is so much future glory for those who follow him. But Father, I pray, even in the here and now, because we know that we exist, Father, for your glory. We know, Father, that we have been saved and been left here in a sin-stained world that we would proclaim your excellencies to others. And how can we do so, Father, without a genuine following of your Son to walk as he walked so that our consciences may be clear that we say, there he is, we will be also. So, Father, please, I pray that you would produce that sanctification in us that we would be filled with your glory, that we may be a cup overflowing, Father, to others. We love you. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen.